Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 36, it says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Verse 38, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. And therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. In this final portion of chapter 11, that's verses 36 through 45, we're given a brief and horrifying picture of Satan's final choice to oppose the plan of God. This is the Antichrist. In Daniel, he's been called the little horn in chapter 7, verse 8. And now here in verse 36, he is called the willful king. Paul the apostle in one of his earliest letters in the New Testament calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's also called the wicked one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. John the Apostle calls him the beast in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. He's also called the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 18. What's interesting to me is both in the Greek language and the Latin language, anti can mean before, or it can mean instead of. 
or in lieu of or in substitute of. And so there is a final antichrist who will come at the end of the age. The angel speaking to Daniel talks of his impudence in verses 36 and 37. His idolatry in verses 38 and 39. This final antichrist figure will blaspheme God and then worship what the text calls the God of fortresses. In the Hebrew language, it's a word that describes a location of fortification. It's a place of power and resolve. And so, the context seems to indicate that he will defeat many. So the angel speaks of the ones he's going to defeat. Israel, Egypt, Libya. And then it speaks of a mysterious figure of the one who will defeat him in verse 45. So the context suggests that God himself is going to utterly crush the Antichrist somewhere near the city of Jerusalem in the future. And so from Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to verse 35, these are events that have taken place in Daniel's future, but in our past, in what was called the intertestamental period. And we've gone through this chapter very carefully through the 5th century and the 4th century and the 3rd century and the 2nd century. And now we're coming fast upon the 1st century. And then we're given this vision of the far future. The British journalist Malcolm Muggridge speculated, quote, What will finally destroy us is not communism or fascism, but man acting like a god. Unquote. I might add, what will ultimately save us is God becoming a man. What the New Testament promised and fulfilled, what John says so explicitly in the first chapter of John, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, quote, there is going to be an ultimate antichrist, one person able to do such wonders that he almost deceives the elect themselves, unquote. And so in the passage, just very briefly, there's a glimpse that's given to us of his satanic pride. Look at verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Remember, when the conversation began, this is the angel Gabriel. He is speaking to Daniel. Daniel is writing down the prophecy. Here at this point in the narrative, it changes. The picture of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who we looked at at great length in the last couple of weeks, now changes and transforms into another king 
a future king. Some Bible teachers see in verse 36 elements and characteristics of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This is the very famous Seleucid king who will go into the temple, who will cause a sacrifice to be made, who will defile the temple. He was allowed to do many things according to his will, but it was only for a season. And so now the angel tells us that this antichrist and the future antichrist have something in common. They will both be able to do what they want to do, but it will only be for a season. And so in verse 36 through 45, Daniel is describing something else, someone else. Like I said, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, is a description at that point of Daniel's future, our past, and now we're seeing something in the far future. We're told of another king, a future king, who Daniel calls the willful king. Now the details in this portion of the narrative don't fit the historical record of Antiochus IV Epiphanes or his successor rulers. So what does it mean that this king shall do according to his own will? It must mean, in part, that he will have no regard for God's will. Now I want you to pause for just a moment. Because many of you throughout your life will ask the question, what is God's will? Very fundamentally, it is God's will that you glorify him. It is God's will that you know him, that you love him, that you enter into a right relationship with him. It is God's will that your sin be forgiven. It is God's will that you be reconciled to him. It is God's will that you believe the message of salvation and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is his own will seems to coincide with the will of God's enemies. And so this particular king stands in opposition fundamentally to the will of God. There's a clue that's given to us by Paul the Apostle in the New Testament concerning this final Antichrist's motive and his search for power. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The future Antichrist, according to the Bible, according to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is going to be energized, enabled by dark powers. Some believe by Satan himself. The Antichrist will view all human beings as his tools. I need you to understand what that means. 
this particular being views human beings as receptacles for his will. He's not interested in what you think or what you believe or how you feel or what you need. There are two kinds of people in his worldview. Those who will submit to him and those who will oppose him. And again, he himself will be the ultimate puppet of the dark prince. The tools that he employs are the tools that have been manifested and used by Satan since the beginning of time. Since our first parents were visited in the garden, the tools that he used are lies and suffering and pride. These are the great tools in his toolkit. And according to Paul, when he says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Who are the most vulnerable? The most vulnerable to manipulation are going to be those who hate the truth. Who are the least vulnerable? Those who love the truth. And now we understand something. That vulnerability rests in a willingness to embrace the truth or reject the truth. Vulnerability lies when people embrace pride. And again, what are the constituent elements of pride? If we were to take pride and boil it down to its very essence, the, the, it singularly represents, number one, opposition to God. Number two, elevation of self. And number three, an invitation to judgment. Pause for a moment because it's really important that you get this. What is the fruit of pride? You'll oppose God. You'll elevate yourself. And in the end, that becomes an invitation to judgment. And this is going to be something so very difficult for so many of us to understand. Because if you read the Bible and you read the book of Revelation, even at the most superficial level, and you read about these judgments and you go, one third of humanity is gone. And then you read down the road where another, now what's left, another third of those people are gone. And then another third of those people are gone. And so you begin to look and you go, how is this even possible? How can there be a judgment that results in most of the human beings dying? Because most of the human beings will oppose God. They'll elevate themselves. They'll invite judgment. And what is pride ultimately? Pride lures us. Pride is the invitation that draws us to accept the notion that we can live our life apart from God. 
It's when you wake up in the morning and you don't consider God, you don't consider your relationship and your fellowship with the Lord. Somehow you begin to entertain yourself and begin to think about yourself in terms of living apart from God and living apart from the revelation of God and living apart from the gospel of God. So pride ultimately will undermine your faith and pride can and will often cut you off from God and the people who love the Lord, pride will ultimately distort your ability to see God, sense his presence, hear his voice. The book of Revelation spells out in graphic detail what the Antichrist's message is. But what you need to understand is that the New Testament gives you a picture of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And see, part of what I want you to be able to understand, every time you open your Bible, every story that you read about Jesus, everything that's said about Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus... All of those things are an open rebuke to Satan and to you. His life is an open rebuke to human pride. His life becomes the encapsulation, if you will, of how to deal with the problem of our pride. And so in the book of Revelation... It spells out what the Antichrist message is. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Do the math. 3 times 12? 36. Add 6? 42. There are 42 months that have been set aside for this particular being, a period of three and a half years. How long did the ministry of Jesus last? He comes on the scene as a young man in the late 20s of the first century. He lives and preaches a message of life and hope for about three and a half years. God sets aside three and a half years so that people will understand what God wants, what God desires, what God embraces. And now this antichrist figure will be given a period of three and a half months. His message is a message of the exact opposite of hope. His message is this. I'm going to introduce to you a world without the God of the Bible, a world without Jesus, a world without this Christ, a world without all of these religious people and all of their religious ideas. The Antichrist is going to truly be Antichrist. Now that might sound redundant to you, but that means in opposition to him. He, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God in Revelation chapter 13 verse 6. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Pause. This particular antichrist 
will oppose God and Christ and everything that smacks of heaven. That is, it says, those who dwell in heaven. All supernatural beings will be subject of his animosity and vitriol. This future king literally places himself in the role of savior, in the role of liberator, in the role of healer. He will present himself as the one who makes whole, that makes peace. This king will insist and demand eventually that everyone pays homage to him. Those who refuse will experience in the beginning persecution and in the end death. It's a reoccurring theme of absolute despots. This is exactly what Lenin did in Russia. This is exactly what Stalin did after Lenin. This is exactly what Hitler did. This is exactly what Pol Pot did. This is exactly what Kim Jong-un did and Kim Jong-il, his father. These, this is what an absolute dictator will do. A dictator isn't interested in a constitution and isn't interested in philosophical explanations of freedom. For the absolute dictator, there's two kinds of people. Those who stand with him and those who stand against him. And some of you might critically and cynically say, isn't that what Jesus says? Isn't that exactly what Jesus says? Doesn't he say everyone who's for me is for me and everyone who isn't for me is against me? This is the difference. The difference between the absolute rule and reign of Jesus and the absolute rule and reign of this antichrist figure is what's motivating them. One is motivated by a profound love for you and a deep commitment to you. And the other is motivated by a hostility against you. He's committed to your destruction. The prophet Isaiah reminded the Jewish people, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish everything that I purpose. And look what it says in the text. He shall prosper. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. By the way, when you look at that text and you ask yourself the question, what wrath is he making mention of? Is this the wrath of the Antichrist or is this the wrath of God? The Bible says in the book of Revelation that the judgments that take place on the planet Earth are in fact, in part, a judgment that's taking place by God. And so is the wrath that is spoken of in the verse, is this a reference to the Antichrist's anger or is this a, a, a mention of God's wrath during the tribulation period? I'm going to leave the solution up to you just for a moment, but whatever it means, whether it's a reference to the time period the Antichrist has, or whether it's a reference to the judgment that God is going to bring upon the earth, whatever it means, it means that God has set aside a time. 
that there is a time, there is a period, there is a time and a period that's been set aside for judgment. And so we could reference verse 35 in this context. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them and make them white and the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. There is an appointed time. There is a time that God has set aside for this judgment. When I was a kid growing up and I first became a Christian, people tried to tell me that that time was at hand. And I believed them. I still believe it. People will say, well, 40 years have come and gone. The same amount of time that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Whenever that time is, it's going to happen. Is it possible that God has postponed judgment just for a season? Is it possible that God has postponed for a judgment so that more and more people could come into have a right relationship with God and Christ? Today, today marks my 46th anniversary. How many of you have been saved less than 40 years? Raise your hand. Less than 40 years. Less than 40 years. Less than 30 years. Raise your hand. Less than 20 years, raise your hand. Less than 10 years, raise your hand. See, there's still a straggler. God in his grace and his mercy has allowed you to enter into a right relationship with God in Christ. The Bible says that God isn't slack concerning judgment. That it's his will that everyone be saved. And so we see this Antichrist figure, satanic policies. Look what it says in verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. By the way, the word translated God in verse 37 is the Hebrew word Elohim. In this context, it might be better translated Gods, he shall regard neither the gods of his father, nor regard any gods. So this final Antichrist figure rejects supernatural powers and deities of past kings, former dictators, and rulers. So people will often ask me, Will the Antichrist be a Muslim? No, because he will not have regard for the God of his fathers. If he is Muslim, he's a bad Muslim. <laughs> will he be a Jew? No, and if he is, he's a bad Jew. Will he be a Christian? No, if he is, he's a bad Christian. I had a person tell me that he believed <laughs> that Prince uh, Charles was the Antichrist. And I thought when Diana divorced him 
I asked this person this question. Hey, if you were married to the Antichrist, would you sort of try to get out of the relationship? But that's neither here nor there. Okay, moving on. The final Antichrist will adopt the notion popularized by Nietzsche and Freud and Marx in their worldview, there is no God or gods. All religion is a human construct fabricated to give people false hope in their view. What will this Antichrist's policy be concerning religion and religious people in general? I'm reminded of Gibbon's famous quote in the remarkable book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He says in that book, quote, the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the fault philosopher as equally false, by the magistrate as equally useful. And this and thus toleration produced not only mutual indulgence, but even religious concord. This future Antichrist will tolerate and indulge religious separatism only for a moment. And then there will be a hostility that will manifest itself. So what does that strange phrase in the text mean? Nor the desire of women. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Different scholars have come to different conclusions about the meaning of that. Some suggest it's a reference to the Jewish Messiah. Remember, an angel is speaking to Daniel. Daniel probably understood this to mean that the desire of women was what every young Jewish girl hoped and begged and prayed to God. The Jewish girl would wonder whether or not God has appointed her to be the receptacle of the Messiah, is she going to be give, giving birth to the hope that God is going to bring to mankind? Which again puts all this into a perspective when you think about Mary in the New Testament. Was she a young Jewish girl who embraced the hope of all Jewish girls to be the bearer of the Messiah? So is this the way to understand it? Is it, is it to, to, to understand that, that, that the desire of the Jewish girls to, for the Jewish Messiah, is this an, a reference to Antichrist's hatred or loathing for messianic expectation? Is it a reference to Antichrist's hatred or loathing of women in general? Does this mean that the Antichrist will hate women who want to fulfill messianic prophecy? Or does it mean that he just hates women because he doesn't have normal affections like a normal human being? Some have suggested that, that this means that the Antichrist will have either homosexual tendencies or outright homosexual so declarations, does it mean that this figure isn't subject to normal affections? 
whatever it means, and I'm going to suggest to you that this pro- is probably what it means, that this person isn't going to have normal human compassion, normal human mercy, normal human sensibilities. So whatever it means, we're left with the Antichrist's repudiation of every religion and all religions. And in verse 38 it says, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. But so the the way that I would read that because you're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said that he doesn't believe in any God, no God. I did say that and that's what the text says. Well, then why does he honor this God of fortresses? If he doesn't believe in any God or no God, what in the world could this possibly mean? I'm going to suggest to you that it means two things. That even when a person says, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in any God, they're lying to you. Everybody believes in something. There is a powerful something inside of each and every individual that's been given to them by God. There is a compulsion, a need to worship, a need to worship something. And so the Antichrist figure will honor his God-given impulse to worship. And what will be the object of Antichrist's passion? I'm going to suggest to you, Two things. Number one, the object of his passion is going to be himself. He's going to believe in an unholy trinity. Me, myself, and I. And how is that going to express itself? In power. That's what the God of Fortresses is. The object of his passion is going to be power. Antichrist is going to honor the God of Fortresses. And how will he honor the God of fortresses? With gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Pause for a moment. Does he care about gold and silver and precious things? No. He cares about what it will buy, what it will purchase. Gold and silver and precious things are only going to be the instrument to get him what he actually craves and wants and desires, and that is power. He will purchase power. He will purchase power and then consolidate that power. Could this reference mean something more? Almost certainly it does. It could mean that the Antichrist figure will take the vast human treasure on the planet Earth and translate it into an invincible army in order to accomplish his goal. And what is his goal? It really is world domination. It's to present a world. He believes in a human utopia. He believes that he can bring peace on the planet if you will do exactly what he asks you to do. 
And so the satanic powers are outlined in verses 39 through 45. In 39 it says, Then he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So what, what, what's going on? What, what is this talking about? Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses. What are the strongest fortresses? These are the, the installations throughout the planet Earth which are heavily fortified. How is he going to get access to these heavily fortified places? He's going to use a foreign god. What does that mean? Is it foreign to Israel? Is it foreign to whatever place he comes from? Is it a foreign God that's foreign to the God of heaven and to the God of the Bible? It would appear that he is going to use some sort of religious sentiment in order to get access to global governance. He shall acknowledge and advance its glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Earlier in the book of Daniel, remember, he saw a little horn that came out among ten horns. That he is going to consume three of these kingdoms. And then he himself is going to work towards global governance. So whatever this power is and however he exercises the power, the Antichrist is able to rule and then delegate that authority and then divide the land for profit. Scholars have wondered, is he talking about the whole planet Earth or is he talking simply about Israel and the glorious land? It would appear that however this person consolidates their powers, it's going to be in such a way that global governance takes place. And so you all are familiar with the New Testament statement. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This final figure is going to put that maxim to the test. He's going to shake his fist at God and say, I want everything. I want it all. And he doesn't care about his soul. And the reason why he doesn't care about his soul is because he's the son of perdition. The world is his oyster. And what kind of world will present itself ripe for conquest? What will this world look like when this person presents a plan with an invincible military army and a world power and few to stop him? What has to happen for that particular scenario to unfold? What restrains him at this point? What might happen that would cause the world to look to a singular savior in order to solve the problems that we face as a planet? There are enough nuclear weapons on the planet Earth to destroy every man, woman, and child. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but over a hundred times. Do you realize that if 
in a limited nuclear confrontation between Pakistan and India, if they just used the nuclear capability that they had against one another, and there was a limited thermonuclear war that took place on the area between Pakistan and India, that the outcome of it and then the fallout that would take place around the world would literally destabilize every country on the planet Earth. What would happen if there was a limited nuclear war where Damascus and Mecca and Medina and the, the powers that surround Israel, what if someone just decides that they're going to push the wrong button at the wrong time? Do you realize that we're one, one single mistake away? One single mistake away from a global thermonuclear holocaust. What restrains chaos? There have been many types and shadows of this antichrist figure. In Persia, Haman was energized by Satan to destroy the Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes, energized to destroy the Jews. Hitler, energized to destroy the Jews. There is a future Antichrist who will once again be energized. And the future Antichrist will promise rich rewards for those who support him and their loyalty. And what follows is most interesting. We're given a brief description of the Antichrist's powers in verse 39, but then something happens. There's a change that happens. Like Alexander, there's opposition. Like Antiochus, both Alexander and Antiochus are going to experience a season of uninterrupted successes. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be something that opposes them. And that's interesting to me. The opposition comes to the willful king. And look what it says in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now I want you to pause and think about this. Throughout the entire chapter 11, the king of the north and the king of the south have remained the same. The king of the north has been a conglomerate of Seleucid countries north of Israel. The king of the south has been a conglomerate of countries south of, of Israel. It would seem that whatever this means, that the theater of the future is going to be fought in the glorious land. Remember, over and over again, the glorious land is a reference to Israel. It's a reference to the Galilee and Samaria and Judea. When will this happen? At the time of the end. And when is that time? In Daniel's sweeping prophecy, we see the times of Gentile sovereignty and control that God has set aside to fully and finally deal with Israel. We've seen the projection. 
It began with Babylon. It continued with Persia. It unfolded during the time of the Greek Empire. It finds its culmination in the Roman Empire, the coming of Jesus, the life and the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then you see this Roman Empire begin to fragment and disintegrate. But these two bitter rivals... These two bitter enemies that have always been against one another are going to unite in what seems like a suicidal pact to get rid of the Antichrist. The king of the north mounts a sudden and fierce attack with all the weapons of war that's available. Now I want you to think about even the words that are used in the text. He shall come with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. People have said, isn't this a little bit anachronistic? I mean, if this is in the far future, are people going to be using chariots and horsemen and, and ships? Albert Einstein was asked, what are going to be the weapons that are going to be used in World War III? He said, I can't tell you all of the weapons that will be used, but I can tell you all the weapons that will, will be used in World War IV. Sticks and stones. <laughs> Is this an anachronistic thing? Are they really going to use chariots, horsemen, and ships? By the way, Turkey has a navy. Syria has a limited navy, but do you know what's the largest navy on the planet Earth? It's the United States Navy. Do you know what the second largest navy in, on the planet Earth is? It's the Russian Navy. If you take America, Russia, Britain, Japan, what is this going to look like? How will it unfold? And is it going to be exactly like what the Bible says? The Antichrist is going to penetrate their strongholds and overwhelm his enemies. Again, some Bible scholars have suggested that these verses may be a reference to a far, farther north group, a Russian navy that's foretold by Ezekiel in chapter 38 and, and 39. My problem is I don't find the argument compelling. And the reason why I don't find the argument compelling is because it could be that Russia has already collapsed and, and it presents no threat to the Antichrist occupation of the glorious land. It could be that Ezekiel 38 and 39 has already taken place and that God himself has already destroyed that coalition. Throughout the chapter, the kings of the north and the kings of the south have always been Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Iraq. In the south, it's always been Egypt, Arabia, the coastal regions of North Africa. Egypt's allies have always included Libya and Ethiopia. The rebellion is met with rage and revenge. In verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. So the Antichrist victories result in the subjugation of the surrounding regions of the Middle East. Certain countries and people are spared. The list of the people spared are Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. You know who that is? It's the modern state of Jordan. If you take 
go from the west of Jordan and then you, just, you go east, that's the area of Syria, or at least southern Syria, and Jordan, which has caused many people to ask the question, why are those people exempted from Antichrist's wrath? Is it possible that some of the people have crossed the Jordan River and entered into that part of the world? Some people have suggested that it might be part of the ancient Nabataean kingdom where there's a rock fortress. Historically, those areas have almost universally brought problems for the people of Israel, but it's only been in the last 40 years that Jordan has been at relative peace with Israel. So some scholars have said, has God set aside that particular part of the world for future judgment or for future mercy? I wish I had the answer, but I don't have the answer. It could be that the Jewish state and the Jewish people finally realize that this antichrist figure is a counterfeit Christ. And of course, Isaiah prophesied about this. He said, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Mamot and the islands of the sea. So what might constitute the first return? Probably the children of Israel's release from the captivity in Egypt. What constitutes the second return? Probably Isaiah's prophecy. So what if this event is the prophecy that's reported in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2, where it says, For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses will be rifled. The women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. By the way, Israel has been sacked and destroyed some 30 times in its history. And each of those times, none of them fits that particular description of what happened. So what's going on? This could be the climax of the time that the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's sorrow in Jer Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 5. And then in verse 42, it says, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. What's interesting about this passage is Egypt isn't a place that I would say is wealthy. Egypt is not wealthy. So what does this mean? Is there some sort of future wealth that Egypt might accumulate over the next years or decades? But then it says the precious things of Egypt, although the Libyans, the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. That means that this coalition will continue to disturb the Antichrist. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. 
Antichrist subdues Egypt and its allies. Then Antichrist has access to Egypt's resources and treasures. The Ethiopians and the Libyans submit to Antichrist. Again, some have suggested, will there be some gigantic oil reserve that will, will be discovered in Egypt or in, in the northern part of Africa? And what's the news of the east and the north? Why does it trouble the Antichrist? Again, some have suggested that Japanese and Korean technology might unite with Chinese manpower and that the Euphrates, according to the book of Revelation, is going to dry up and then attack Antichrist's position. Opposition to Antichrist's rule seems to be growing. It would seem that whatever's going on at this moment in history, the whole world is now ready to throw off the yoke of the Antichrist and have some sort of bid for some sort of independence. Other nations join the rebellion. Who might join the rebellion? Mongolia, Siberia, India. Will the Muslim countries resist the Antichrist? We're not told. Verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, and he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Think about what you just read. That's his obituary. Yet he shall come to his end. That's his obituary. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy who has wreaked havoc and destroyed much of the people and the resources of the planet Earth, the book of Revelation says, gives us this vision of, is this the guy who troubled the nations? Whatever this means, the Antichrist sets up his command and control center in the Middle East to deal with the chaotic unraveling of his global empire somewhere between the Mediterranean, that's the seas, and the Dead Sea. It's a Hebraism. It means between the seas, could mean between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea or between the Sea of Galilee and and the Dead Sea, but clearly the glorious holy mountain is Zion, where the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem. The Antichrist troops fill the land, that's the planting of the tents, but no one is able to help him. No one is able to help him stand against God. The return of the Messiah is going to bring him to his end. And the Antichrist obituary is more fully written out in the book of Revelation, where it says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, but which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh." In other words, this final confrontation is going to result in carrion birds eating the dead for months to come. In Daniel chapter 9, we learn that there was an outstanding time left 
for Daniel and his people and that this countdown begins when the Antichrist signs this future treaty that ensures the safety and security of Israel, but then will end with this catastrophic war and the coming of Christ. The angel's final word to Daniel about the future Antichrist is imparted. He shall come to his end. No one's going to help him. So the Antichrist reign of terror is about to close. The angel just has one more thing to say. It's what follows in chapter 12. It's a description of the end times in verses 1 through 4. The duration of those times between verses 5 and 13. The closing comments of the angel is going to include a warning. The warning is, Daniel... There's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of heartache in your future. But Israel has a prince, an angel, a protector, and someone who will preserve the remnant. The angel says, things are going to get bad. But God has a book. And the people whose names are written in that book are going to ultimately be delivered and reconciled to God. He also speaks of a day, a resurrection day, where the dead come back to life. Certain of those dead come for everlasting life and certain of them come for punishment. And then he speaks of a shining The righteous will be like the stars in the heaven. And then three specific times are given. 1260 days, 1290 days, and 1335 days. What does all of this mean? That's next week. (laughs) Lord, Lord, we know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Lord, we know that, as is our custom, Lord, we have communion on the first Sunday of every month. And Lord, we're reminded of what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, how he took bread and broke it, and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you, And then the Bible says that again, he gave thanks and, and praise. And he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, we know that there's an awful shedding of blood that will take place in the not too distant future as all of humanity makes the decision whether or not they're going to follow Jesus Christ or whether or not they're going to follow the Antichrist. And Lord, we pray that even now as we take this bread and drink from this cup, that Lord, we want to go on record. We want to be men and women who are pinned 
in the pages of the book that you've set aside that this person is a Jesus lover and a Jesus follower. This is a person who loves Jesus, believes Jesus, has experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin from Jesus. Lord, we want to go on record. We want the world to know that we love Jesus. Lord, we thank you that our names have been entered into that book. Not through a religious ritual of taking bread and juice, but through the real historical act that Jesus has died on a cross, shed blood, and with that blood has entered into our ledger the hope that we are men and women who love you and believe you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.